0: Today is the first in our series a church worth talking about and we're going to be considering over the next eight weeks we're going to be looking at the church in Antioch and we're going to look at why it was a church worth to, talking about and uh, the relevance and uh, what we can learn uh, from it for us as a church in Winchester. And uh, so we're going to look uh, in Acts chapter 11, And we're going to read some verses. They'll come up on the screen behind me if you haven't got a Bible, um, so you can follow uh, me as I read. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. This is what it says. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God... The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This morning we're going to be considering the whole issue of being courageous in faith. I was uh, reading uh, some uh, months ago now that the US standard railroad gauge, that's the distance between the rails, is four feet Eight and a half inches. Why such an unusual distance? And here's the answer that I read. The railroads were built by colonists from Britain who travelled over to the States, sailed over to the States, and that's the gauge that they used. And the British used this standard because all their railroads used that gauge, and before that, all their trams and wagons used that dimension. And in turn, those wagons had wheels that that were that far apart, because if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to use the old wheel ruts on their roads. And as we know, the main builder of roads in Britain were the Romans, to enable easy movement across the empire. So the the ruts were first made by Roman war chariots, and four feet, eight and a half inches, was the distance needed to accommodate the rear end of two war horses required to pull a chariot. Who says getting stuck in a rut can't have far-reaching consequences? Up until this point in in the book of Acts, The church had been based in Jerusalem. And reading through the first ten chapters, you could be forgiven for thinking that uh, this was very much a Jewish faith. And I want to suggest to you that the church in Jerusalem was in danger of getting stuck in a rut. I remember some years ago uh, when I was working for the council... And I was out on a site visit, and I was trying to get to Hook Park near Warsash. And uh, I had a map, and, and on the map there was a—it uh, looked like there was a road. It wasn't one of the main roads, but I thought, I, uh, "No problem. It's a shorter distance. I don't want to travel two or three miles. I can do this. So this is about half a mile." And uh, I started driving, found this track, drove around, started driving down the track. And after about uh, a third of a mile, I found myself, the car was in deep ruts. There were deep ruts uh, uh, in the road, in the, in the track. And uh, these ruts were, were fairly deep. And the, and the further I went, I just couldn't get out. I was stuck. I had to follow this path. I couldn't reverse because it was quite bendy and I thought I'm going to lose the exhaust on the car. And I really started to get nervous. I could hear uh, the the, uh, the mud under the road hitting the bottom of the car. I was stuck in a rut and it wasn't that I couldn't move. It wasn't that I couldn't move. I just couldn't change direction. I was just, I had to keep going. And I was desperately panicking that I was going to, the rut wasn't going to get deeper and the car wasn't going to get stuck. Fortunately, I got out of it, but I never drove on that path again. Getting stuck in a rut is a dangerous thing. You see, God's intention was always that the gospel, the good news about the salvation of Jesus should go to the ends of the earth. The church in Jerusalem had become big and influential. Thousands had been saved and were being added to the church almost on a daily basis, we read about in the early chapters of Acts. The first believers were fearless in talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, they were wholeheartedly committed. ...to the word of God. They were passionate about worship and prayer. And they loved one another deeply, which uh, showed itself, manifested itself in selfless living. And yet I want to suggest that after about 20 years, they were in danger of being stuck in a rut. You see, the apostles, Jesus' first 12 disciples, would have had Jesus' last words to them ringing in their ears... Jesus said this to them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, just before he left to go back to heaven. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I mean, I can imagine them rationalising. We just need to concentrate on Jerusalem. Things are going so well here. There are people being saved almost every week. We just need to build the church here. If you'd asked them about Judea, they would have said, well, we've got some plans for Judea, and they probably would have involved the, uh, the equivalent in those days of busing people from Judea into the big church in Jerusalem, Sunday by, su- Sunday by Sunday. If you'd said to them, what about Samaria? What about the ends of the earth? They'd have said, Yes, definitely but not at the moment. I can just imagine them saying that. They were stuck in a rut. It was a good rut, but it was a rut nonetheless. You see, God had other ideas. God didn't want his church not fulfilling his great plan to rescue a needy world. God wasn't going to allow them to remain stuck in a rut. The lesson is... Good churches get stuck in ruts, get stuck in ruts of tradition. Tradition is all all about, with tradition, it's all about how you do it, not what you do. It's more about how you do things. Get stuck in uh, uh, ruts of legalism. It all becomes about rules and regulations. Church becomes about, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and if you don't do that, you're not a good Christian. If you do that, you are a good Christian. It all becomes very, very legalistic. can get stuck in ruts of the same people doing everything. That certainly wasn't what God intended for the New Testament church, that some people did everything and everybody else sat around and did nothing can get stuck in a rut of that. You can get stuck in a rut of a bad, heart attitude, being judgmental, looking down on other people, elevating yourself. What about us? What about us this morning? What about you? Are you stuck in a rut? And if you are, God wants to speak to you this morning. You see, suddenly God causes the believers who up until that point were quite settled in Jerusalem to move out. And they uh, end up moving, some of them, as far as Antioch in Syria. And yet wherever they went, they couldn't stop talking about Jesus, talking about the grace of God and the wonder of salvation. Subsequently, the church in Jerusalem becomes less and less significant. As new churches, like this church that we've been reading about in Antioch, start up. As you read the early chapters of Acts, the church in Jerusalem is mentioned all the time. As you get to the end of the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem is mentioned less and less and less. And other churches become more significant. In Acts chapter 11 verse 22, which we read, it says this. News of what was happening in Antioch reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Antioch birthed a quite remarkable church, which became for, a model for other churches in fulfilling the Great Commission, Jesus' great plan to reach a needy world. And indeed, this, still, this church in Antioch still provokes us today. It is still a church worth talking about. Since joining The church here. I've heard many people refer to Winchester Family Church as an Antioch type church. What does that mean? A bit presumptuous? Is it a bit presumptuous? Maybe. What does it mean to be an Antioch like church? I heard uh, Julian Adams when he was with us earlier in the year prophesy over us that we were like an Antioch base. What does that
1: mean?
0: Interestingly, Antioch was a church made up of ordinary Christians like you and like me. Ross Patterson in his book, The Antioch Factor, says this. The greatest church of its day, the church at Antioch, was planted by a group of unknown believers... We don't know the name of a single individual whose life and ministry and witness birthed that great church. Yet it was the Antioch church, not the star-studded Jerusalem church, that impacted the unreached world of its day, bringing life and joy to multitudes. Unknown Christians, ordinary people who walk with an extraordinary God of grace and power, really can make a difference in other as yet unreached lives. How encouraging. Simple believers like us in Winchester Family Church can make a difference. And yet, for all their ordinariness, the church uh, in Antioch, the believers in Antioch, had a number of stand-out qualities. Things that made them stand out, made people sit up and take notice. And I believe God wants to stir us and challenge us over the next eight weeks as we focus on some of those standout qualities that we see in the believers in Antioch. And in reading this passage, perhaps the greatest quality we see is a church made up of believers of courageous faith. These believers were absolutely sold out for Jesus. They were courageous in the face of huge obstacles. What is faith? Faith, at its essence, at its heart, is simply believing what God has said and acting upon it. The message version of the Bible uh, puts it like this in Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2. It says this, The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors and set them above the crowd. You see, we put faith in all sorts of things. Annette puts her faith in me. We went to Alton Towers over the summer. Took the kids to Alton Towers. And uh, when we were going home... Um, We suddenly realised we uh, had forgotten where we'd parked the car. We hadn't made a note of it. And I said, don't worry, I can remember where we parked the car. And so Annette put her faith in me. It was only after about half an hour, as her faith started to ebb, as we were wandering aimlessly around the car park, and I said, no, I think it must be over there, and we'd go there, and of course it wasn't. Eventually, uh, the paramedics in their uh, Jeep uh, went and drove around all the car parks at Alton Towers, and they eventually found our car for us, and uh, that's why we're here today, otherwise we'd probably still be wandering around. But the point is that Annette put her faith in me, but it slowly ebbed away. God isn't like that. He's not like us. When he says something, we can trust it completely. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, he says at the end of that chapter, hear these words of mine and put them into practice. He says if you do that, you're like a man who builds his house on a rock. If you don't do it, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand. When the storms of life come, the house on the sand gets swept away. You build your house, you build your life on what God says and you will be in a solid place. Jesus says, put your faith in God. As you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, he always starts by focusing on what Christians should believe. But at the end of each book he always focuses on putting that faith into practice. And so faith isn't just head knowledge... Faith is always active. Faith expresses itself in what we do. And so the great faith chapter in the New Testament is full of stories of what men and women did because they believed God. And you read stories of crazy old Noah who builds a massive great big boat in a desert because God told him to do it. And you read about his remarkable faith. Faith is active. And yet we all know that exercising faith isn't straightforward. In fact, the Christian, Paul encourages uh, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12, to fight the good fight of faith. Faith is a battle. I went to a a funeral recently and we sang a hymn, I haven't sung for ages, it's Onward Christian Soldiers. It's all about the Christian being in a battle, this life being a fight, a fight of faith. You see, the Bible makes it clear that there's a devil who's seeking to destroy us and steal from us all the grace of God for our lives. We're engaged in a battle against him and against the demonic forces that he controls. They're plotting all sorts of schemes to try and steal the grace of God from your life, from my life. You see, in the midst of this battle, we need to exercise courageous faith. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll know the story of how Christian is going to the house beautiful. And uh, it's it's an allegorical story. Uh, that, uh, that's a picture of the Christian life. And as he's going uh, uh, along the highway, and he's going to the house beautiful, he comes to a point and he sees two lions ahead at the side of the road, one either side, and he is absolutely terrified. His heart is filled with fear, and he stops, and he, he won't go forward because he's so frightened. And eventually, um, the story goes that he's encouraged to go on. He's encouraged. He's given courage to go on. As he goes on, he finds that these two lions are actually chained. And uh, they actually can't. Anybody who walks down the middle of the highway is safe. And even though they can feel their breath and hear their roar, he's able to walk past them. That's a picture of what it's like for us as Christians. The enemy is chained. Jesus has won the victory. Jesus has defeated him. But as we walk along the path of life, sometimes he roars and he creates an image, an impression that causes us to be immobilized. Like a car that's lost its little chip in the key. Car becomes immobilized, can't move. We become immobilized by fear. He roars loudly. He looks big. He creates problems that seem insurmountable. But God says, if you walk with me, if you keep pressing on with me, he is a defeated foe. In Christ we can do all things. That's what the Bible tells us. And so we don't need to be riddled with fear. We need to resist the devil standing firm in the faith, we're told in James chapter 4 verse 7. We need to trust God like Isaiah and not be afraid. Paul urges the believers in Corinth to be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. How on earth do we do that? How on earth do we do that? It's easier said than done. Well, there are a number of things I quickly want to draw out from this passage that we've been looking at about how the believers in Antioch exercise courageous faith. And I believe God wants to challenge us and inspire us as his people this morning. The first thing is this, courageous faith sees opportunities. There's an airline pilot flying over the south coast of England and he called air traffic control and said, we're passing over Southampton at 35,000 feet. Can you give us a time check? The person at the other end replied, what airline are you? The pilot was a bit irritated and he answered, what's it matter? I just..." One, the time. Give me the time. The air traffic controller said this. Oh, he said, it makes a lot of difference. If you're British Airways or Virgin Atlantic, it's 1,600 hours. If you're Monarch, it's 4 o'clock. If you're Ryanair, the little hand is on the 4 and the big hand (laughs) is on the 12. And if you're EasyJet, it's Thursday. Perspective is everything. Courageous faith helps us see things from a different perspective. More particularly, it helps us see obstacles as opportunities. And I quickly just want to pick out a few things from the church in Antioch, how they saw things from a different perspective. The first thing is this, they faced huge conflict. In Acts chapter 8 verse 1 we read about the persecution that broke out against believers because of following Stephen's martyrdom. God allows violent persecution to break out against his church. And as a result the believers were forced to leave Jerusalem. You would have thought they would have been extra careful about what they said. Having faced persecution, wherever they went you would have thought they would have been a little bit more careful. About what they said. A little bit more careful about talking about Jesus. Far from it. Wherever they went, they couldn't stop talking about Jesus. They weren't influenced by what went before. They had a different perspective. Conflict was an opportunity for the gospel. Now we don't face that sort of conflict at the moment. But the sort of conflict we face is very subtle. You see, we face a much more subtle form of attack, ridicule. People mocking our faith. You sort of only have got to read the papers this week to see the mocking by scientists of people who believe the Bible, believe that God created the heavens and the earth. That's the sort of persecution, the sort of opposition with it, the sort of subtle ridicule that sort of tries to embarrass and humiliate us. Actually, these believers in Antioch faced the same sort of thing. You see, they were the first ones to be called believers. They they were the first place that they were called Christians. The people of Antioch called them Christians. It wasn't the church, it was the people in Antioch who called them that. You see, Christ was the Greek word for Messiah. It, It meant the anointed one or God's anointed king. And these people were so talking about Christ, so, uh, the conversations were so full of, uh, of Jesus, that the people of Antioch made up a nickname for them. to ridicule. It's a derogatory sort of phrase. Oh, those Christians, they're always talking about Christ. It was a derogatory phrase. It was ridicule. But do you know what? Over a period of time, that name became a badge of honour. That ridicule became a badge of honour because these Christians weren't put off by that, they weren't influenced by it, they pressed through because they saw opposition as an opportunity. What about us? Do we view mockery, ridicule, antagonism as an opportunity? God wants us to have courageous faith that sees opposition as an opportunity for the gospel, whether it be in your school lessons, in university lectures, in the work canteen, in the street, on the farmer's market. God wants you to be courageous in faith about the gospel. We also see it in the culture. You see, the people of Antioch were known for their satirical, satirical wit. But principally they were known for their at uh, sex life, even the Romans considered the people of antioch's sex life excessive. One of the uh, Roman poets wrote about the moral sewage that ran from Antioch down to Rome. Do you know anything about Rome? Antioch must have been a terrible place. It must be full of sexual immorality. In fact, there were hundreds of temple prostitutes. Antioch was incredibly promiscuous, full of cults. But the believers weren't put off by that. Actually, they saw it as an open door for the gospel. What about us? We're called to be in the world, but not of it. We're not to be those who avoid the tough areas by hiding behind the walls of a church. We need to be like Jesus, who spent his time with the dregs of society. It says, Jesus said when people challenged him, the religious leaders challenged him because he was spending all his time with these uh, people who uh, uh, were prostitutes, were tax collectors. Why are you spending your time with these, Jesus? Jesus said this It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We're to be those who get our hands dirty. This world may be a grubby world, but God's call on us is to be courageous in faith and go to those who have no hope. But it wasn't just in the culture, it was also in the circumstances. You see, these believers, they left Jerusalem and they left everything behind. They came to Antioch, they had nothing with them but what they could carry. There were no removal lorries, turning up with stuff from their houses. They had to leave all that behind. They literally turned up with what they could carry. And yet that didn't put them off. Their circumstances were difficult. Having to leave their homes, having to leave their neighbours, having to leave perhaps the places where they'd grown up. And yet they went to Antioch gladly, full of joy. It was an opportunity for the Gospel. It was an opportunity in the midst of tough circumstances to show that this faith, this relationship with Jesus was real. And I want to say to you this morning, in a world driven by materialism, we are to be people who live differently in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficult circumstances, we have an opportunity for the gospel to show that this faith is real. We have a faith that goes beyond the grave. We're not living for this day. We're not living for this world. We're living for a better world. There is a world to come where we will be forever with Jesus. We're just passing through these days. These are a few short days for us. We're to see circumstances as an opportunity. Courageous faith sees opportunity. But secondly, courageous faith breaks new ground. See, the church in Jerusalem had already started to slip into the rut of tradition. You See, the church had a very Jewish feel to it. Most of them were believing Jews. Those that weren't and who had put their faith in Jesus had also embraced Jewish customs, circumcision, the law with all its rules and regulations. And sadly, those things were to become as important as salvation through faith in Christ's completed work on the cross. They easily forgot that Jesus spent all his time challenging the religious leaders of the day, About the dangers of tradition. The church in Antioch was birthed. Out of a courageous faith that broke new ground. Broke long established barriers. You see the believers began to speak to Greeks. Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. They broke boundaries. They broke out of, across barriers. That short phrase had a cataclysmic. Change on the early church. The courageous faith of these few believers from Cyprus and Cyrene turned the church upside down. They didn't just talk to a few Greeks who were hanging around the synagogue. They went out into the streets and the marketplaces and they talked about Jesus to anybody who would listen to them. They were remarkable people. They lined themselves up with the word of God, not with the way the church had always done church. You see, we need to remember that add-ons, however helpful, are not essential. And we mustn't allow them to become tradition. You see, beware the phrase, we have always done it that way. I remember some years ago in a church, uh, I've only ever been a member of three churches, this is the third. The first church I was ever part of in Swansea uh, we used to, it was a very uh, traditional Baptist church, but we used to have a big table at the front uh, of the stage. And on this table they put the communion wine, the little cups, and they put the bread, put a white sheet over it. And I remember at the end of one of the meetings, um, some of the young people were, were standing at the front and they were sitting on the table swinging their legs. I mean, they were, had... A couple of people came and absolutely castigated them. You're sitting on the communion table. It's a table. It's a table. It's just a piece of wood. Now, there was a whole issue about respect and, and all that, so I'm not saying that, but it was just a table. How amazing that a piece of wood. Can suddenly take on such proportions. How easily we slip into these things. Let me give you one example. We have got, we've slipped as churches into the tradition that whenever anybody gets baptized, they have to uh, give a a testimony. They have to stand up and they have to read something, and it's often three or four minutes long. And uh, how many people have been put off by that? That is a tradition. I tell you, I want to say it's great when people get up and give a testimony. Okay? I don't want to say that people shouldn't do that. Okay? It's, it's great when it happens and it's really encouraging for us the church and it's an amazing witness to people who are coming to watch on. But it is just a tradition. If someone gets baptised and they're just able to say, when asked the question, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And they say, yes, that is sufficient. Okay? The rest is tradition. We mustn't be driven by tradition. You see, it's so easy for us in terms of our meetings, our style, the length, the way we do evangelism, or we do it through Alpha here, The way we do works of ministry to get tradition, get into tradition. You see, the believers in Antioch were prepared to break out of tradition. They had the same attitude as Paul, who said this in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 22. He said that he became all things to all men, so that by all means possible, he might save some. What does that mean for us? Well, it's not about community groups or reaching your neighbours. It's about both. It's not about which style of worship you prefer, which worship leader you prefer. It's not about your preference. It's not about sitting back and letting the same old people contribute on a Sunday morning. I want to say this to you. Whenever you hear someone say, nothing ever changes. I want you to challenge them, what have you done to bring about change? It's very easy for us to complain and moan. The challenge is, what are you going to do to bring about change? If you say, well, nobody else, the same old people contribute on a Sunday morning, what about you contributing? What about you seeking God during the week for something to share on a Sunday morning? Don't settle in the rut of tradition. You see, courageous faith breaks new ground. But also, courageous faith attracts God's favour. Courageous faith attracts God's favour. You see, the scattering of believers as a result of the persecution that followed Stephen's martyrdom resulted in believers that came to Antioch speaking to Greeks they had no idea what was going to happen. They had no idea of what to expect. They were simply doing what they knew God had told them to do. And yet the results were outstanding. Large numbers of Greeks started turning to God. We're told they believed and turned to the Lord. They put their trust in Jesus and they repented of the way they would lived. And they turned to live a new way, to live God's way. What about you? Do you need to turn to God today? Maybe you're here for the first time and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you, do that today. It is the best thing you can ever do. You see, when Barnabas saw what was happening, he encouraged them. He encouraged them, he gave them courage, encouraged. That's what encouragement is. You encourage, you give courage to other people to press on and live for God. And as a result of his encouragement, there was another deluge of people being saved. Revival started in Antioch. Why did it start? You know, we're always looking for the ABC of revival or church growth. What do we need to do? If we do this, then God will do that. You see, the answer is in the text. The Lord's hand was with them. You see, courageous faith attracts the favour of God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. Courageous faith pleases God. When we step out in faith, it attracts God's favour as we take steps of faith as individuals and as a church, does it mean that we'll see revival, incredible church growth, miraculous healings, all our prayers being answered? Is that what it means? Well, there's no guarantee. But please, God, may it happen. Please, God, may it happen amongst us. You see... What we can be sure of is the favour of God will be on us, whatever form that it may take. Phil Moore in his devotional commentary, straight to the heart of Acts, says this, God loves churches which refuse to place limits on the Gospel. God loves churches that refuse to place limits on the Gospel. God wants us to be courageous in faith. And as we do that, we will see his favour on us. Finally, and I'm not going to spend long on this, courageous faith leaves an inheritance. You see, news of what was happening reached, uh, uh, went around the known world, went to the believers in Jerusalem, went to the apostles. And the faith of those believers in Antioch, it left an inheritance that we still enjoy today. And it's crucial you understand that. It's not just about us. If we aren't prepared to fight for what God says, then those who follow behind will lose out. One of the consequences of the believers at Antioch preaching the gospel to Greeks was it resulted in an inheritance of literally thousands of Greeks coming to faith. Non-Jewish believers. Courageous faith Always leaves an inheritance. It provokes the same faith in those that watch on. I'm going to quote from Fillmore's commentary. And uh, in the acknowledgement at the start, it says this It says this about his dad. I want you to listen to this. Dad, your example birthed in my heart the passion that brought this series into being. I didn't listen to all you said when I was a child, but I couldn't ignore the way that you got up at 5 o'clock every morning to pray, read the Bible, and worship. Because of your radical love for God and for his word, when I wasn't interested in Jesus, I saw his Holy Spirit at work in you. Because you made the invisible God visible, you convinced me that the message of Acts is true. Does that provoke you? I tell you, it should. I want to be able to give those who uh, I have some, for, some responsibility for an inheritance. I want to leave them something. You know, I'm not going to be able to leave pots of money. I'm not going to be, leave a, a library full, a shelf full of books that I've written. I'm not going to be leaving a multi-million pound business. But I can leave something of far greater value. I can leave them a deposit of courageous faith. And you can do the same. What do you want to leave as your inheritance? Money, possessions, things that don't last and won't satisfy? Or do you want to leave a deposit of faith in all who've known you? Well, if you do, there's only one way. And that's to stand up... And fight for the truth and the promises of God in this life at every opportunity. This inheritance isn't for just for those you know. It's for those who follow after as well. Courageous faith leaves an inheritance. As we come to a conclusion, as we come to a finish this morning. As we've been considering courageous faith. I feel God wants to say some things to us. In Luke chapter 19, in verses 11 to 27, Jesus tells a parable called the Parable of the Talents. It's a parable about the importance of risk-taking. He said, if you don't take risks, you don't have any faith. If you don't have any faith, you're being unfaithful. And he concludes the story in verse 26 of Luke 19 and says this, Risk your life and get more than you ever dreamed of. Play it safe and you end up holding the bag. Maybe today for the first time you need to take the risk of putting your life in Jesus Christ's hands. Will you do that? In the, first, in the few verses we've looked at this morning there's both a warning and a promise. The warning is that we can end up being stuck in a rut individually and as a church. Just like an oxbow lake that looks beautiful but has no fresh water flowing into it. It's been separated from the flow of the river of God and slowly, bit by bit, year by year, deteriorates and stagnates and just becomes marshland. We can end up being sidelined and missing out on God's great adventure. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel that you've allowed yourself to become sidelined. Rather than being filled with courageous faith, you have become immobilised by fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of what people will think if you get up and do something for God. Fear that you're not good enough. Fear of people. God wants you today to step out of fear and into faith. Christopher... Robin, in the book by A.A. A. Milne, says to Pooh Bear, says this, Promise me you'll always remember. You're bla- braver than you believe and stronger than you see. You're braver than you believe. Whatever you believe about yourself, whatever lies you've believed about yourself, God says you're braver than you believe. You can step today out of fear and into faith. Yet for those who throw themselves Into God's purposes. With courageous faith, there are great and precious promises. Opposition becomes opportunities. Religious traditions and boundaries can be broken. God's favour is attracted to courageous faith like iron filings to a magnet. You can make a difference in your lifetime and in the lives of those who follow on after you, who have been impacted by your faith. And yet it will cost, and it will be messy. Ross Patterson, in his book The Antioch Factor, says this, and I'm going to finish with this. The title of being an Antioch church seems to offer gain and position. But in reality, it will offer loss. It will cost prayer, people and finance in the task of world mission. It will upset local programs. If we think that being Antioch means we're going to be famous without paying a real price, we have missed the point of the whole matter. The challenge this morning is are we prepared to pay the price? Let's stand. Perhaps John and the musicians would come out. We're going to finish with a song. I particularly feel this morning that God wants to touch a couple of groups of people. The first is those who perhaps have come, you've never given your life to Jesus. You've been standing on the fringes watching and you're thinking, oh I don't know. Maybe today you need to do one of two things. Maybe you need to come and talk to me and I can pray with you and help you take that first step of coming to know Jesus Christ. Or maybe you just need to go talk to the person on the desk at the front and say, I'd like to sign up and do the Alpha course. I'd like to get along to the Alpha Supper. I'd like to find out about this faith in Jesus Christ. Do that this morning. Come and speak to me or go and speak to uh, either one of the team in the orange shirts or someone on the front desk. The other group of people here this morning, you know that you've been, you're in danger of being sidelined. And let's close our eyes. I'm not going to ask you to uh, do anything. But I just want you to respond by saying, if you know that you've been racked with fear and it has just impinged on your walk with God and it's restricted you and you've got stuck in a rut and you don't know what quite how to get out but you know that you want to step from fear to faith today. While well, everyone's got their eyes closed, I so just want you to put your hand up. You know that's you. You've been racked with fear, whether it's fear of what people will think about you, fear in the workplace, fear about actually serving God. Maybe it's a fear, uh, a fear of uh, moving in the Spirit, kind of sharing at the front. Whatever it is, you know that you've been restricted, held back. I'm going to ask Pauline to come and read a couple of verses. I've got the verses here for her. She doesn't know she's going to do this. And then she's going to pray for you. She read this this morning. And it's from Psalm 34. I'm going to ask Paulie to come and read this. And she's going to pray for you now. And uh, as she does this, I'm believing that God by His Spirit is going to come and help you take that step out of fear and into faith. I want you to listen to what she says. This is is the promise of God. It's in Psalm 34, and then Paul is going to read it, and she's going to pray for you. And as you do that, as you've got your hands raised, God's Spirit is going to come and be imparted into you. And you're going to feel, faith is going to come on you, and you then need to take steps of faith to step out of fear and into faith in whatever the situation is. So be receiving from God right now.
1: Psalm 34 says this I sought the Lord and he answered me he delivered me from all my fears those who look to him are radiant their faces are never covered with shame this poor man called and the Lord heard him And he saved him out of all of his troubles. Lord, we just say to you that we call on you. We turn our faces, I turn my face to you. And I thank you Lord that you promise that you will answer us. That's what your word says. He said, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Lord, I pray that that word would live in our hearts. I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray over us. That this word would live. Lord, I thank you that you promise. That as we look to you, our faces will be radiant. They will never be covered in shame. This poor man called. And the Lord heard him. And the Lord heard her. And you saved him and her out of all of their troubles. Yes. Thank you Lord.